you would turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to read this whole section now for us as we've been working our way through it. I'm going to read the whole section all the way down to verse 10, but we're going to focus this morning on verses 8 through 10. This is the word of the Lord. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Now, as we read this, we, we gain this understanding as we look at this whole section now together that there's this idea, if you will, of this great tragedy, this great horror of what humanity is like apart from Christ, and yet God, being rich in mercy by His grace, has saved a people, redeemed them, called them out of bondage, out of condemnation, called them to serve not a taskmaster like the devil, but rather a master who loves them and cares for them, a benevolent king. And now Paul comes into this section, having talked about these things in verse 5, about God's mercy, and about in verse 7, the future display of that mercy. And now he wants to come and give us a very particular look at what he was talking about there when he said, By grace you have been saved. He now comes back and says, let me make sure you understand what I'm saying. Now the interesting thing is, is that this very doctrine, which I'm not going to go into all the various conundrums that are being discussed, but this very understanding of grace and how we are saved is once again being discussed and debated in the great halls of academia, but not just there, on the worldwide web. And the reason why I bring this up to you is because it is critically important for us to really look at Scripture and to draw from it what it really teaches us so that we might know the truth, not merely so we can refute error. Great if you're able to do that, but more so that you might live in hope, that you might live in faith, that you might live in the good works that God has called us to and understand rightly what you're up to and why you're up to. This is the point. God has called us to be worshipers. And if we don't understand why we worship Him, and if we don't understand how we worship Him, then what have we really been taken out of? We are once again plunged back into a darkness of which we cannot free ourselves. 
And what I want us to look at then is this. Paul turns to expand on the amazing, glorious realities of God's grace. And its effectiveness for the objects of God's mercy and love, and its free application given to the objects of God's mercy and love, and in its recreated power at work in and through the objects of His mercy and love. The first point I want to look at then is the effective grace. Grace is effective. Grace actually accomplishes what God intended to do. That's what Paul is saying here. For by grace you have been saved. Not hope you're saved. Not opportunity to get saved. Not it be nice if you did get saved. For by grace you have been saved. It's a reality that you have been brought into. And the reason why it's important for us to get that from the get-go is because Jesus Christ did not come so that people would have an opportunity to be saved. He came, as Matthew tells us in the first gospel, he came to save his people from their sins. Not maybe, not as a possibility, he in fact did. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And it is imperative that we see that grace God's grace accomplishes what he sets about to accomplish. Not just creating a possibility for it. And this is not just salvation from our sins. As if it's just merely we quit doing the things we were doing before that God has deemed sinful. But rather sin being seen more like this. A salvation from the whole condition in which we formerly lived. Seen in his rescuing us from death, from bondage, and from condemnation. So, here's what I want you to begin to process through your minds and, and feel in your hearts. When you're saved, God transforms you and begins to bring you into a different way of thinking. Think about what the writer Paul says in 1 Corinthians. We now have the mind of Christ. He begins to change your affections. Why? Because although it's never explicitly said, the reality is that if you read the Gospels or you read the New Testament, you realize that the heart of Christ, His very own heart, just like His mind, is being permeated through His believers, through His people. So that the affections that Christ has for the Father are the affections we have for the Father by His working in us through the Spirit. What we need to see is salvation is completely and totally a work of God in the people of God. It is all of God. That's not to say we're not doing anything. I just want you to get clear what Paul is saying. It is completely and totally effective. It is completely and totally God. So that we think differently. We believe differently. We serve someone different. And we know why we serve Him. It's not just blind servitude. It's a servitude of a God we know. And as Paul says, it's not just so important that you know him as much as it is important that he knows you and that by name. It's effective for all who believe. This is something that's being discussed right now in, in our world is that, well, is it effective for everyone who believes? Well, yes, you can't believe one day and stop believing another. If it's all of God, you can't stop God from doing what God wants to do. So we need to understand it. He is saying here, as I've said before, Paul's understanding of salvation is I'm saved in the past, I'm saved in the present, I'm saved in the future. The reality is when God saves human beings, they are saved. You can't be hot one day and cold the next. 
That may be how you feel. That may be what your experiences draw you into. But those are the very things that we need to repent of and once again come back and believe the truth. If you have been saved, you are saved. And that is a sure hope you can take to the bank. Because it's banked on not gold and not silver, but on the righteousness and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The most valuable thing there is in the universe. So the point here that we need to look at is a reality that is effective for all those who believe. Also, the understanding of this thing would be that it brings about resurrection from the dead spiritually now, but in its fullness, both soul and body will be fully and completely resurrected at the second coming of Christ. We're removed from servitude to the cruel master of this fallen world, and we are set free from always following the passions of this life which we are seeing in abstaining from God's good gifts or using them in a manner or a way that were not intended. I don't want to take too much time because I'm going to come back to this, but I want us to really get this in mind. And I've tried to show you in the New Testament over time, this is how the Bible looks at things. There are people who I call indulgers, and there are people who I call abstainers. And the Bible says that both of those people are wrong. Because there are people who indulge and pervert the good gifts of God, and there are people who basically spend their whole life saying, somebody might pervert or indulge in those things in a bad way, so let's stay away from them completely. But Scripture says that that's the doctrine of demons. 1 Timothy chapter 4, to say, abstain from the things that God declares good. And so see, in both categories, people are perverting what God's Word actually teaches that we should use things in a right and proper manner. More on that later. But that at least gets us to an understanding of where we're, what we're set free from. And that one can only believe by faith. Faith is part of the whole gift of God's grace. There are some who look at this passage, and this certainly is the historic understanding for many, that for grace you've been saved through faith, that this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God. And so they see the fact that this is talking about God giving us faith, so that we might believe it. I don't disagree with that theological concept. I just at least want to entertain this for you. I think that P.T. O'Brien and other scholars are right when they point out that in this particular passage, what's being discussed here is not our faith at all. What's being discussed here is the object of our faith. And what's really going on, if you read this passage in light of what he said back in chapter 1, that Christ is now seated in the heavenly places, that Christ has accomplished all these things, that what's really maybe going on here is this, that what's being said here is rightly translated, for by grace you have been saved through the faithfulness, the obedience of Christ. That's really what Paul is driving home. And if you see that, then it doesn't take away from the fact that it's who we put our faith in. But the reality is, it is the fact that Christ has accomplished our salvation. And so the right perspective would be that we look to Christ in faith, which certainly in other passages in the New Testament we are taught that God gives us faith. It is a gift of His, but the true gift is Christ Himself. That is the object. That is the satisfaction. That is what unites us into the heavenly glories is Christ himself. Now, I'm not going to have, for those of you that 
that maybe that creates a conundrum for because the way you maybe have thought about this past and past. I don't have a big dog in the fight. I just think that that is possibly what Paul is getting at. And I think contextually, as we go through the rest of this book, you will see that I really do believe that's what he's speaking about here. Which doesn't undermine us, it rather strengthens the whole point that we believe that we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. It rather teaches and drives that home and to the heart. Now this passage in context may actually, as I said, be focusing on this. And the reason why I think that's important, let me tell you why I think that could be of help to us, is because if you go to Romans 5, we see there that Adam had disobeyed a covenant which God made in the garden with him. And we're told that Christ is the second Adam who comes and fulfills what Adam didn't. While the first man's act of unrighteousness plummeted all of us into sin and death, the one righteous act of the belief of Christ on behalf of the believer gives freedom in life. So it may be that Paul is actually really summarizing very briefly other things he's taught, other places and drawing them in. It's also talked about in 1 Corinthians as well. The second point that I want us to look at then is that this grace is not only effective, but it's free. Now I've already kind of alluded to that. There's no way to not, but I want us to look at that more specifically. Turn with me, if you will, to Acts chapter 15. We can kind of begin to get a context in which Paul is thinking and speaking. If you turn and ask chapter 15, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one provided for you there on one of those chairs. Look at Acts chapter 15, beginning in verse 6, and I just want to read a little bit there. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. My Bible's not wanting to turn very well here. Here we go. And there had been much debate. Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Speaking of Cornelius, who he had gone and spoken to. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Did you hear that? Verse 11. But we believe that they will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, just as we will. So we see that part of the discussion that Paul clearly has in mind is this reality of what happens now that Christ has come to the old Jewish ways of doing things, the perverted ways that some of the Jews have been doing things, the right way they've been doing things, the perverted way they've been doing things, and how does this affect the Gentiles? That's clearly in Paul's mind. And that phrase that's said there by Peter says that Peter and Paul understood that we were saved through grace. Grace that was given to us because of Christ. Now Romans 3, 24 through 26, Paul says this, And we are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. Propitiation basically means this. 
Jesus Christ took all the wrath that was due us because of our sinfulness upon himself. That's what propitiation means. If you're ever reading the Bible and you have no idea what that word is, that's what that word is, is reflecting. To be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because of his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And there you see clearly that faith is something we have towards God that he gives to us. You could also look, if you want to write this down, you can look at this later on this afternoon, Galatians 2.16 and Philippians 3.9. Again, these are places where Paul is drawing us to reflect and to consider this reality of the fact that God's grace is free. You cannot do something to get it. It comes free. So that Paul then says, back in Ephesians chapter 2, that it is not a result of works. It's nothing we have done. It's nothing we will do. We have no claim on God or His grace apart from Him showing it to us because of His love and mercy. That's something we need to come to terms with. Because we are often, men and women, plagued by this notion of somehow, I know God saved me, I know He saved me by His grace, but when life goes bad, I must have done something. That's why these things are happening to me. And if there's anyone in this room that tells me you never think that way, praise the Lord. I praise the Lord that you, that you never, ever question why this happened. Because in some sense, the very moment that you say what has happened, it's almost a sense that a loving, good God wasn't really caring for you in the midst of something that by your standards seems tragic and horrible, but by His standards is actually working in you. Christ-likeness. And we are constantly at war within our hearts to believe that. That is part of our struggle as God's people. And we need to admit that. That way we can repent when we do it. And once again, we return and believe the truth that free grace has saved me from all my sin. All of it. Not in part, but the whole, as the hymn writer declares to us. When we do not believe that God's mercy and love and grace are greater than our sin, all our sin, when we don't believe that it's greater than all people around us sin, then we have failed to really believe the truth of the gospel. And you understand what that does to us. It either makes us haughty because we see ourselves doing better than others and so we go, hmm, wonder what's wrong with them. Rather than, I wonder what's wrong with them. Nothing wrong with the question, just an attitude that lies behind it. How do I come into hell? How do I, once again, reaffirm in them the reality that God is at work, His grace is real, His goodness is at work, His mercy is sufficient, that really there is a reason to sing joy to the world, because He comes to save the world far as the curse is found. As far as it's found, His grace is greater. As far as it's found, His mercy extends farther. There is nothing greater, not heights, not depths, nothing greater than the love of Christ for His people. His grace is free. And as we've already said, it is sufficient. He goes on to tell us this, not a result of works, which is this idea of we cannot earn it, we can't do something. 
Here's another thing that we need to get on in our minds. There's some of us who think that God grades on the curve. You know, I did enough good stuff, and here comes the curve. I mean, it was a tough call, but I made it. God is the grade on the curve. The law requires perfection. It's as simple as that. What does the law require? Perfection. Of which none of you bring to the table. You never will bring to the table. Perfection as God requires, not in this life. And so the reality is that you cannot do anything to get it. You cannot earn it. You cannot merit it. You cannot, in any way, shape, or form, say, I did something to get God to say, look at me. Another thing we need to think about is, I know that, that this was something that as I grew up in, in, uh, in broad evangelicalism growing up in my life, and some of you will experience this and, and appreciate this having gone into the Christian colleges or have gone to uh, Christian schools, is the people that they always bring in to talk to you about salvation. How many of you ever had somebody walk in and say, you know, this was the person they brought in, the keynote speaker that was going to give the evangelistic statement that we can... The person stood up and said, I was raised in a Christian home, baptized as a child, honestly cannot ever remember a time in my life when Jesus was not real to me. How many of you ever, if you had that experience, have gone to an evangelistic crusade with that statement on the person's lips? No, 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 it's never that. One that I might actually could relate to, because that is my testimony, by God's grace. No, it's always, I was the biggest drunk, the worst drug addict, the most perverse abuser of women, and the most perverse abuser of men. I was this, I was that, I was the other. Nobody could have been worse than me. And it's almost like what they're saying is, I was so evil that God they said, I've got to say it because of the, how wicked they were. It's almost as if to say that somehow you earned God's favor because you were really bad. And you almost walked out of chapel thinking, man, I need to go out and be a hellraiser in order to get really saved. I'm really not that bad a person. I, I, I'll tell a lie when it's convenient. I might, I might look on someone's Notes every once in a while when it's when it's helpful to get through a test because maybe I didn't study and and that's of course God being merciful to me. I had a Christian school. You know we're all supposed to share. <laughs> See, but the point is, men and women is that sin and that sin that Dennis Hermerding needed to be saved from and convicted of and drawn out of. And it's also in some ways what I believe personally led me to live the first part of my college life in absolute disregard for what I've been raised to believe. See, that's why it's serious to me. That's why it bothers me. But we need to be clear about what God is doing in us and that all our sin, every single jot tittle of it, is offensive and condemnable to hell. Because if you don't see the offense, then you'll never appreciate the freeness of grace. You'll never see that that rock has been cracked open for you and that water of His saving mercy is pouring out upon you. And you will be overwhelmed by the flood. Thus, we have nothing to boast about ourselves. And here's some ways I want you to think about if you're a boaster. Just think about this. 
Are we more bothered by other sins than grieved by our enemy? When you're around other people, are you more bothered by the fact that they're not doing that? When you're probably right, they're probably not doing what they're supposed to be doing. Or they're not doing it in the manner in which they're supposed to be. But are you more bothered by it? Or are you more grieved over your own failings? Over your own issues? Over your own dysfunctionalities? How much time do you spend thinking about how you're not being a help? How you don't worship God in spirit and truth all the time? Are these the things that gravitate and bother you? Jonathan Edwards put it like this. We should be most charitable to other people and their sins and most savage and vicious upon our own. The problem is that's not how most Christians live. We are most savage about everybody else's sins and very charitable. We pet the little dragons of our sin <laughs> rather than killing and slaying those beasts. That's what we're called to do. Are we just middle of others? This is another way of looking at it, of what they do, rather than praying for them, beseeching that the merciful Heavenly Father would have grace and mercy upon them, and maybe give us wisdom and understanding of how to invade their world and love them. Maybe it's just a sheer lack of having true Christian fellowship in their life that they just are many times ignorant of some of the things they're doing, or maybe they had teaching that led them to think that that was the right thing to do when it wasn't? Are we will it really willing to get involved in others' lives? And do I look to see what God is doing? This is the last thing. Do I look to see what God is doing in other people's lives or am I always seeing where they're failing? Do I ever look to see, gosh, look at that person. I mean, you know, this was actually short-winded in that conversation. Praise Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> See, how often is that the statement that's made? No, it's usually pointed out the fact that I could extend a, a two-second question into three hours, and it's really quite easy. <laughs> if you really love me, you stand there and listen. <laughs> now, while Paul says we have nothing to boast about in ourselves, he does say this. Not in this passage, but in other places. And this is something that we have to believe this passage is always in Paul's mind. So we are called to boast in this. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. Listen to what it says. Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices, listen to this, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, Justice and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. We should boast in the person and the work of God seen in Christ and experienced by the power of the Spirit working our lives. Thus, we are called to give all praise to God, not in false humility, but in true submission. And value over who he has revealed himself to be and what he has done for us in Christ. And I want to say this true humility and false humility are like this. False humility is when someone, and, and I do this, and I hopefully have never done it in false humility. False humility is this. I used to have a friend of mine who was a wonderful teacher of God's Word. And every time someone would come up and say to him, you know, brother, that was just amazing. You, I just have seen new things in God's Word. I just, I'm just touched deeply by 
your work on our behalf. Well, brother, let's not thank me. Let's give all the praise to God. As if somehow that person wasn't giving praise to God. They weren't necessarily celebrating this individual. They were just celebrating the reality of God's word that he, by God's grace, had the gift to open up. Now, I'm not saying that sometimes you will hear me say to some of you, well, I just, I really give God praise. And I hopefully sincerely always mean that when I say it. It is not to put you off. Hopefully it is to, once again, remind us that this really is all of God's word. But sometimes I'm prone to just say, thank you. I'm glad that that sermon, or I'm glad that that teaching, or I'm glad that that prayer was helpful to you. Why? Well, because that's my vocation and calling, is to serve you. So if God, through me, accomplishes purpose, thank you. That encourages me to press forward, and let's all stand and give praise to God, because he's doing what he promised he would do. See, real humility says, God really is at work. And I see it all around us. I'm looking and seeing it. And I'm humbled by it. The final thing I want us to notice in this passage then is this. Verse 10. Oftentimes when you hear Ephesians 2, most of us immediately run to verses 8 and 9 and we go, yeah! Woo! But verse 10 is supposed to be tacked on there. It's got to mean something, brothers and sisters. And this is what we need to think about. Not only is grace effective, not only is it free, but grace is recreational. Not recreational, although that's a part of it. It's recreational. It's creating anew. Renewing grace, if you will. We, as this passage tells us, are God's masterpieces. And that ought to astound you for a few minutes when you think about it, because most of us, if we really look at our lives, we don't think that we are the Mona Lisa. Da Vinci Code nonsense set aside. Um, we are not all these other things that we would think of as masterpieces. Beethoven's fifth. That's a masterpiece. That's a magnum opus. But that's what God says we are. You are my magnum opus. And that has to just, if you just stop and think about it, that has to overwhelm you. The great and glorious God says, you are my handiwork. You are my image bearers. You. And you fell in your father Adam from that lofty place. And he cries, I've come to recreate you as a masterpiece. So that I can display, as he's already told us, my covenant kindness, my covenant love. My covenant mercy, so that others might bow down and worship me. And so the first thing we need to see is that we are masterpieces created by God and created for God. And Calvin says of this particular section that this is basically where Paul and his argument about grace being all of God and none of us, this is where he kind of drives the stake. So we can talk about the effectiveness of grace and the freeness of grace and all those other things, but none of us have had anything to do with creation. We didn't create ourselves. We didn't create anything out of nothing. So the point here is that what Paul is arguing here is that God has recreated us in Christ, something we cannot do for ourselves, and something we will not do for ourselves, ever. 
The New Testament sees the person and work of Christ as the great crescendo of creation. 2 Corinthians 5, 16-18 says this, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. And see, what he's saying is that we don't regard Christ that way. All those who are united to Christ, we don't regard as of the flesh. They're not of the flesh anymore. They're in Christ. And while they may do fleshly-type things, they're not of the flesh. That's not where their loyalty, that's not where their condition, that's not who they are any longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is, and this is how most translations translate it, he is a new creation. I don't want to do anything to dissuade you from that aspect of what's being said there. But if you actually read it in Greek, this is what it actually says. We were, uh, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, new creation. Now, the only reason why I point that out to you is because it's not merely saying, it is saying you are a new creation, but it's not merely saying that. It's saying you now are a part of a new creation. Old things have passed away. Who you were, what you lived for, why you lived for it, how you processed. Old things have passed away. You have entered into a whole new realm of existence. And now Paul's about to say, act like it. That's really where he's going. You have been brought into a whole new way of life. You formerly walked this way. Now you've been called to walk this way. Not only have you been called to walk that way, he's prepared all the things he's called you to walk in beforehand. He predestined them back in eternity past. Now see, what I want you to get is how do you fail? How can you fail as a Christian? I'm not questioning whether you have your down days and your good days and you're better than and worse than and you stumble and you fumble through life. The point is, is that if God has done these things and prepared things for you to do, how can you fail? The answer is you cannot fail. Does that make sense? Too much of our Christianity is spent going, well, am I sure I'm in God's will or am I not in God's will? Too much of our Christianity is spent, well, am I doing the right thing or am I not doing the right thing? Men and women, we have a Bible which does two things for us. It cracks open the grace of God to us. And it instructs us and grants wisdom to us so that we might live and please the Lord. That's what it does for us. Why is it that we walk around like beggars who don't have the riches of heaven found in the person and work of Christ? Which Paul tells we have in Colossians. You have the treasure of heaven. Why do you act like you're a pauper? You have a heavenly father. Why do you act like you're an orphan? See, that's the problem. We don't live in accordance with who and what we are. We are created to display God's glory for good works, not dead works. This is the only place on almost the entire New Testament where Paul ever talks about works in any context. He's normally saying, not works, not works of the law, not these works, not your pagan works, no works. But here he now says, now that I've got it clear in your mind that your works have nothing to do with salvation, period, not now and not later, nothing to do with your salvation. Now let me start to talk to you about what you were saved for. You were saved for a purpose. And that purpose is, our primary purpose in life is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That is your primary purpose. And Scripture calls you to it. 
Now, in conclusion, then I want to talk about this. Because the rest of what Paul is going to say begins to unpack what that should start to look like. But I want us to think about this. While the whole of the beginning of this text gives us a bleak view of life apart from Christ, we see in the end the great crescendo of who we are because of His grace. So then we might ask the question, how then do we live in this life? The first thing I want you to remember is you've got to remember the gospel. You've got to learn to be a person who savors what Christ has done. You've got to remember the effectiveness, the freeness, and the recreative aspects of Christ. In Christ, for you. And for all those around you who are brothers and sisters in Christ, you have to have a different perspective about it. We must live a life of repentance. This is why we confess our sins. It's because we really do believe we are supposed to repent on a regular basis because we're doing things wrong on a regular basis. Not living in sin, but the point is, is that this is what I want you to start to think about now, women. Do you realize how merciful God is that for every single one of us, He never fully shows you how bad you really are, ever? If He ever really showed you how bad you really were, right now, if He really opened up your mind, you would go insane. You have no idea how perverse and wicked the wickedness we have been saved from. And all the thoughts and intentions of our hearts, which we don't even know. By His mercy, He doesn't let us see all of it. And He takes our subtle attempts at serving and pleasing Him and makes that good in His sight. And we need to see that. That does not somehow excuse us from dealing with the things He by His mercy reveals to us. In fact, that's exactly what we're called to do. Slowly but surely, He begins to open and crack open the door. Open and crack open the door more. And we see, gosh, I really am a mess apart from Jesus. Praise the Lord who continues to show me where I'm failing, that I might walk in this life. That's what we're called to do. We must live and walk in the Spirit. I won't read Galatians 5, I originally intended to, but our time is coming short. Read Galatians 5 today. If you live by the Spirit, then walk by the Spirit. And if you do the things of the Spirit, you're in concert with the law. That's what Paul says in Galatians chapter 5. Read it. Think about it. Go on to chapter 6. And as you get motivated, go back to chapter 1, 2, 3, 4 and spend the whole day in Galatians and do some good. <laughs> if we really understand this, then we will look at the world differently from both indulgers and abstainers, both of which are perversion of the Word of God, as I've already said. Now, I want you to think about this. In the Old Testament times, there were other nations that circumcised their children and circumcised adults. There were other nations who offered up sacrifices. There were other nations who drank and offered up wine libations to God. There were the nations in many cases did a lot of the same things and used the same stuff that Israel was called to do in their worship of God. Now this is why I want to challenge us to start to think about how we live with God's stuff. The difference between Israel and all the other nations was not what their clothes were necessarily. It wasn't necessarily that they didn't use materials. Now they had a certain way of weaving it and all this. But my point is that they used a lot of the same fabrics, a lot of the same colors, a lot of the same everything that the people around them used. But the way they used it and the reason why they used it was completely different. So see, 
if you eat a steak, somehow when you're sitting down with your unbelieving friend from work, because you went to lunch, if you sit down and eat a hamburger or a steak or whatever, by God's grace, you've been afforded to have, you ought to eat that completely different than he does. Not that you don't. And then you count a hundred bites to make sure, like your mother told you, you've digested it properly. <laughs> whatever those things may be, the point is, do you taste and savor the goodness of God when you eat? When you have a cool drink of water, do you remember that this is the mercy of your God for you? And do you think about, maybe sometimes, that that ordinary water was actually the water that was poured out on you to bring you in to the covenant people of God, to give you a mark that said, you are a part of the people of God. And do you remember sometimes, maybe, when you're doing the various things in your life, that these things point us to God? And I'm even going to enter your bedrooms for just a brief minute. Have you ever, ever, ever thought sexually about your spouse? And this is if you're married, again, remember context, context, context. But if you ever thought about your spouse in a way that said, this reminds me as we're joined together of my union with Christ. This is exactly where Paul's about to take us in Ephesians chapter 5. Marriage is a reflection of the union of Christ with his people. And therefore, sex is a reflection of the union of two people together as one that's supposed to point us to remember that we are one with Christ. We should think about it totally differently. And see, men and women, what I'm trying to say is that sometimes it becomes a lot easier to quote-unquote behave when you get the proper understanding of what these things are made for. Because then you're not even thinking about the perversity or the abstention of. You're thinking about what's the right use of. And how am I using this and remembering this and reminding myself of the good uses God made these things for. And what they ultimately point me towards. Finally, I want us to remember this. We should walk in deep humility God for His redeeming grace. Seek to be used as instruments of His mercy and love in the hands of our Redeemer. We should grow in our love for God. We ought to be people, my God, we can us for that when he has done for us. Let us be people who may go, they talk about God all the time. What's up with them? See, I must get a little excited. Because God's done some amazing, transforming things for this church, for people who are believers all across this valley, this state, this nation, and this world. And one day, someday, he's coming for us. We have a lot of things to see in the praise God for. The God may be so in our midst like that.